0: (coughs) In this this forum we try, usually, to look at things that are both fundamental and that are coming out from the deeper, deeper sources, perhaps. Perhaps that's why they're fundamental. Tonight, let's try to look at... At an issue that's fundamental in a slightly different sense, and that is that we are here going through the three weeks that is the time of <coughs> that's the time of um, problems in, in the Jewish year it's a time that's fraught with difficulty danger it's a low ebb of, of the energies that, that we as a people are riding and therefore the, the focus of, of this time of year really is primarily an, inner, an inward focus. That means we are looking into ourselves. We try to identify areas that need work. We try to identify elements of direction that need to be set. set perhaps that's a time for self-analysis and for looking at those areas in particular. And let's try to let's try to begin that process by examining a fundamental aspect of this, this area. We can ask a few questions that may seem unrelated, but they will lead us to an understanding of focus, primary understanding, primary area of focus that each Individuals should be making within their own personal progress, within a marriage, in a family. It's a painful message, painful lesson, but <clears throat> it's essential. And this is the time to this is the time to focus on this sort of thing. Let's ask a few questions and see where it will lead us. Now Let's stay together because the questions are not necessarily will not necessarily appear to be connected, and each of them raises many, many issues. You know, the, the destruction of Stoim, Sodom, right? Stoim and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, two towns that represented an empire that was extremely negative. The, the people who inhabited and comprised those societies were extremely depraved. Extremely brutal, extremely immoral. They perpetrated indescribable <coughs> brutality and immorality, and it's quite clear from our sources, both in Chumash and the later later sources, that what the nature of their crimes was. And they were wiped out. They were annihilated. It's a classic, a classic, almost a proverbial source of cataclysmic annihilation in a divine cataclysm. They were totally eliminated and wiped out. But what's surprising and needs deep analysis is that when the Torah itself later comments on this particular (coughs) decimation or annihilation of these communities, the Torah says something very strange. The prophet Yechezkel, when he talks about the destruction of Stoim, he gives what purports to be a reason for their destruction. And he says that the reason they were wiped out was because they never supported the hand of people who were poor and destitute. In other words, in plain English, they didn't give charity. They didn't take people who needed, they did not take people who had lacked, and give them what they needed. They failed in the area of charity. He goes on to talk about other things, but the prime factor that he identifies as the direct reason for their demise was the fact that they didn't give people who needed things, they didn't Now, that that, that that raises an enormous question. And the question is as follows. Let's try to work it out fully. Hopefully, we'll we'll learn many things on the way. The question is this. When you have failings, if you take a society that was guilty of of heinous and, and horrendous wrongdoing, and you wish to put your finger upon the exact reason that they were wiped out, surely the last thing you'll think of is the fact that they didn't give charity. Not giving charity is a very, very minor aspect of Torah compared to the negative things that they perpetrated. Let's see if we can understand that. First of all, can you feel this? Not clear. This was a society that had a philosophy, Sodom's philosophy, the philosophy of Stoim, was a completely insular and isolating philosophy. They believed that what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. I do not begrudge you having what's yours. They weren't immoral in that sense that they, try, they weren't avaricious and took away things from other people and other societies, but that it would allow no one in. That extreme influx control laws, that no one was allowed into their, into their environs. They were completely closed loop. That was the philosophy. And if people came in, they tortured them brutally, not because they were interested primarily in torture and brutality, but to teach the lesson that we don't give to the outside. we completely locked. That means we better ourselves only. The Medrash said that they did things like the practice in Stoim was that if a visitor, an unwitting visitor, did arrive, they would put him in a bed, and if the bed were too short, they would cut his legs off, and if it were too long, they would rack him apart. That's so that he could. The only debate in Stoim was which end they would cut off. That was the debate, whether they cut his feet off or his head. That was the learned debate in Stoim. But whichever one it was, that's how they, that's what they did. Literally, this is a literal, this is a practice that they did. The Gemara says, for example, that Lot's daughter the daughter of Lot right? She settled, they settled in Stoim, and Lot went there to try to improve the people. Of course, he failed ultimately, but me the disciple of Avraham Abinu, whose method, whose, me, whose message in the world was kindliness and giving, he went there to uplift the people of Stoim, and in fact, he, he, he displayed tremendous heroism for it. He lost at least one of his children. The major says that when she gave some bread to a poor person who had wandered into the town, the townspeople put her on the roof and they tied her down, and they spread her with honey and let the beast sting her to death. But, they did that, that, that was the behavior of these people in order to show that we don't give anything to the outside. We are a closed looper, an isolated society. In our, in our situation, it's immoral to give benefit to anything that's outside of the individual, outside of our society. Now, now when you ask yourself where the real immorality is there, where the real cause for their destruction is, does it lie in the fact that they never gave charity to those who needed it? Or does it lie in the fact that they were unspeakably brutal? I mean, Surely if you're going to get wiped out in a divine cataclysm, <coughs> surely the appropriate thing to put your finger on there would be their unspeakable brutality and their tremendous immorality. This is, not the, this is not the forum to go into the details of the nature of the immorality, but it's, it's metaphorical, proverbial, in English language even. Take it from the name of their city. And that's only a small part of what it is. So if they were that immoral in the sensual area, and they were that immoral in the, in the, in the, in the brutality and violence area, why does the Prophet single out later that the real cause of the problem was they didn't give people what they needed. Surely that's minor. Are we beginning to see the difficulty? Not clearly enough. Let's try and make it a bit clearer. Let's try and make it a bit clearer. You know, the Torah can be broken down into two components. There are the positive mitzvahs and the negative mitzvahs, right? You know that? There are 248 positive commandments, things that you're obliged to do. There are 365 negative commandments, things that you are prohibited from doing. For which category are the punishments more severe? So a fantastic area to understand. For which category, let's, let's ask the question a little differently, which category is more important? Let's descend here to the deep sources, the Kabbalistic sources talk about this, the deep sources. Which of these mitzvahs, if you can ask such a question, which category of mitzvahs is more important? What's more central, the positive mitzvahs or the negative? You know, the positive mitzvahs, the things that you're obliged to do, correspond to the 248 parts of the body. And each of them constitutes an organ in the spiritual world, an organ or a limb, and it builds the human form, just like each part of the body constructs the human form in the world of the physical. So each mitzvah in the spiritual world is building a part of the human form, the supernal form. That means the higher, the higher world of the human form, which devolves or projects itself down here. Each organ or limb here has an organ or a limb that it receives its light from in the spiritual world. That's the mitzvah, the positive mitzvah. The 365 negative mitzvahs correspond, according to one system or dimension of understanding to the days of the year, the days of the solar year, not the lunar year, which is really an indication that these are the framework of the time dimension which holds all of reality within it, the negative commandments. According to another frame of reference, the the mitzvahs that are negative, not stealing, not killing, etc., all the prohibitions in the Torah, those things correspond to the 365 parts of the body, Amor says, that are the sinews or the tendons that bind together the limbs and organs. In other words, there's a structure of organs that are yeah, the, the limbs and organs that constitute the body. And then there, there are tendons or limbs, the sinew, the, the, the connective tissue that holds together those organs, right? In other words, the framework. The organs themselves are your functioning. And the fact that they all linked together, they're bonded all together, that is the holistic, the, 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 the force that builds them together. There are 365 elements there. Which is the main and which is the secondary? Which is primary, which is secondary? It's obvious that the 248 elements are the primary ones. Those are the parts of the body. The 365 are only the interconnections between the parts that hold it together, but they're not the real central functioning. Or if you like, they're the time frame within which the body moves. But it's not the body itself, it's the frame of reference, it's the outside environment. Why is this? Again, we're going to take a little detour if you don't, with your permission. Let's just go through this very rich and wonderful area and bring it back to our subject. According to the deeper wisdom, amazing idea, it takes a lot of thought, when you fulfill one of the 248 positive mitzvahs in the Torah, you build an aspect of the spiritual world. You from here project a light upwards into the source of that mitzvah, and it begins to glow, and it becomes active, and according to the deep tradition, it then brings down a response to the world. And that's a big long discussion, and the Nebuchadnezzar goes into great detail about it. But the point is that that is what happens when you perform a positive mitzvah. We don't always see it, we don't necessarily know it takes deep Torah study to understand how mitzvah here. In fact, the word mitzvah is fascinating to know. People think it translates as commandment. Mitzvah from the root tzav, which in Hebrew means to command. In fact, the more literal translation of the word mitzvah in Hebrew means togetherness. The Aramaic root tsafta, but chad or the Hebrew word tzabbet, and everyone speaks Hebrew in modern Israel today, the word sevet means a crew or a team. It means where elements are linked together in a common function. Mitzvah means togetherness. And the deep sources say it's because when you fulfill the mitzvah down here in the finite and physical world, you bond into oneness with the source. After all, that's where it originates, and you become the, so to speak, the tool or the cutting edge of that thing, and therefore there's a duality, there's a partnership that's set up between the one who wills it and the one who does it, and those two then bond into oneness. When you do a mitzvah here, you are bonding with the source. Those are the positive mitzvahs. The negative mitzvahs, the same sources say, do not build anything in the spiritual world. Know that? They do not build anything in the spiritual world. All they do is prevent the spiritual world being broken down. All they do is hold it together. Is this clear? When you eat mitzvah on Pesach, you do a positive mitzvah, you build something incredible. You're a woman and you light candles Friday evening. Amazing things happen. Unbelievable things. There the Gemara says you rekindle the light of the world. Amazing things. Every positive mitzvah, you build tremendous things in the spiritual world. When you fulfill a negative commandment, right this evening, lost in thought, you pensively stroll down the main street here, and you walk past a jewelry store, right with a glass window, behind which is thousands of pounds worth of... And not relying on the pavement is a half brick. And it will be the work of a moment, yes, to heave this through the... I hope at least after tonight's talk you won't indulge, but... <laughs> and you... Ignore the opportunity. You walk on by and you do not do that. You have thereby fulfilled the mitzvah of not stealing. Right? You fulfilled the mitzvah of not stealing, haven't you? After all, isn't that what it says you should be doing? So our sources say that nothing happens in the spiritual world. Nothing happens. You fulfill the commandment of not stealing, but nothing happens. Is this clear? There is a special dimension of human work in which you grow if you attempt it. That means that you have to overcome your own drives and you have to subdue them. So then there's personal growth involved because you subdue the personal... There's a tremendous growth involved. In fact, the Gemara says that it's counted as if you fulfill the So that's another discussion. But in essence, nothing happens in the spiritual world because all the negative commandments do is they don't construct anything. All they do is if you, if you transgress, then you damage. Let, uh, there are very, very few enlightened faces. Either, you or, either I'm a lousy teacher or you are slow. Let's... Uh, I've got my suspicions about <laughs> Let's go a little further. Let's go a little further. We have a concept, That's a wonderful idea, we have a concept that the Ten Commandments, that all of the Torah is contained in the Ten Commandments, you know, that, that all of the Ten, the Ten are not Ten isolated Commandments, they are the root commandments, they are the root issues out of which all the rest of the Torah is blossoming or, or perhaps unfolding. There's many sources that go into identifying where each of the mitzvahs is located within one or other of the Ten Commandments. We have an idea that any entity in the spiritual world is always unfolding from its beginning. Just like a child is formed by a process of unfolding, the first thing that happens is a moment of conception. In the moment of conception, the totality is laid down. The pregnancy then is a much more, it's also a very intense moment or time of formation, but it's not nearly as intense as that infinitesimal cosmic moment when the genes fuse and the totality of the child is being coded. And after the pregnancy is over and the child is born, it becomes, as you move on, you move into less and less critical phases. The the closer you move to the moment of beginning, the closer you move to the moment of total formation. The first word in the Torah, Parashis, contains the rest of the Torah, in its sense of history and, and physical reality. The first word in the Ten Commandments contains the whole of the Torah in terms of spirituality. In other words, all of the Ten Commandments are the source of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. But all the Ten Commandments are located in the first one, by the same rule. Can you see that? Anyone out there? <laughs> all of the Ten Commandments. If the principle is that any process evolves or develops from its moment of conception, then if you have a system of ten, it must mean that the first one is that which holds all of them. And isn't it obvious? The first of the Ten Commandments is, I am Hashem. In fact, the Rambam and the Ramban here go into a discussion about whether it's even a commandment. It's so primary. The statement of Hashem's existence, which is really the statement of existence itself, is so primary that perhaps you can't even count it as a mitzvah. Perhaps it's a precursor to all mitzvahs. There's a learned debate about whether it's the first of the mitzvahs from which the others evolved, or it's the statement of existence, existence itself without which you can't begin. The way it's put in the sources is, until you have someone created, you cannot command him what to do. You can't begin his creation with a command. First there must be the existence of the person to whom you're speaking, then you can speak. But it's obvious that, I am Hashem, that is the very beginning, and it contains nothing. Meat makes any sense if that beginning is not in place. What's the second of the Ten Commandments? Is this idea? Is this, what's the second? The second is, the first is, I am Hashem, which contains everything. The second is, you shall have no other gods, right? There shall be no other gods other than me. Can you see that it's nothing other than the negative phrasing of what the first one was in the positive? The first is, I am Hashem, and the second is, and don't do the opposite, which is looking to sources that are false outside of me. So the commentaries say this, that all positive mitzvahs find their root in the first one, which is the source of all positive commands, and all negative commands take their (coughs) source from the second, which is the root of all negative commandments. Clear? After all, any time, can you see the logic? Any time you fulfill a positive command, you're asserting a faith and a belief and an affirmation of, I am Hashem. After all, if he is the source of the of commandment itself, so every time you do what he says, you are also fulfilling that first commandment. Every time you fulfil a negative command, but right, you desist from breaking something, you are also observing the second, because he commands you not to go against what he is and break down his manifestation in the world. Now, it should be clear from this that if if the first of the Ten Commandments is positive, and it's the root of all positive commands, and the second of the Ten Commandments is negative, and it's root of all negative commands, you see immediately that the positive contain the negative. That, that if by definition, the closer you go to the beginning, the more all-encompassing you are, you are being, so then it follows that all negative commands are only conditions in the positive. They're only a subset of the totality of commandments, which is the first one. Is this, um, are we getting somewhere? You see right away from this that positive commandments are far more, if you can use the word important, they're much more, they're primary as opposed to Negative commandments are secondary. To go a little bit deeper, the concept is that all, if you think about it carefully, you'll realize that there are only two modes in the world. In the Kabbalistic sources, these are called male and female. But without going to that now, as soon as you come down out of the world of oneness, which we cannot conceive, you are talking about a world of twoness. There must always be creator and created. There must always be that, that duality. The Torah begins with a base to teach this. <coughs> In all human functioning, there are only two modes. There's what's called anva and Yira. There's love and fear. All your activity, all your inner life, all your thoughts and all your activities can be brought down to one or other of these. Love means any outgoing, any giving, any transmission from yourself outward, any movement towards. And fear is always a shrinking away from and a holding back and a desisting and a not doing. All that you can do must fit into one or other of these two categories. Can you see that? Which is primary? What you give in the world, what you generate, or holding back from not doing that which is hurtful and harmful. Let me put it more sharply. What are you here for? What are you here for? Are you here to not be negative and not damage, or are you here to build the positivity? Let's put it that even more sharply. When you enter a relationship with someone, you get married. You get married. They are positive and negative. The positive commandments in marriage are those activities which build the love. The negative commandments in marriage are those which do not harm or act in disloyal fashion. The shoulds in marriage are the things that you do that build the connection and build the love. The should-nots are the things that you may not do that are acts of disloyalty and hurt to the person you are connected with. Make sense? Which is primary, which is secondary? You don't get married in order not to be disloyal. I mean, I hope not. (laughs) You get married in order to build the love. Isn't that what you're doing? Only as a guard, as a protection for what's being built, you act. You, you take care to put a fence around those things that might lead to acts of disloyalty and lack of... But that's not why you're doing it. That's completely secondary. It's only a condition. Is this, is this clear? Yes. The positive actions are the reason and the total identity. They are the, yeah, that's the essence of what you're doing. You get married in order to build a love and to build a relationship and that's what's happening. You take care at the same time as a secondary layer not to damage what has been built. You put protective mechanisms in place. But that's not the essence. If you build a factory, yes, you're in business, you build a factory. Your factory produces goods. Yes? You have a big, extensive factory and it produces goods, high volume of production. Around the perimeter you have an electrified fence with guards walking up and down with dogs. Which activity is primary? Do you start your factory in order to employ men with dogs and have an electrified fence? You don't do it that way. You build a factory to produce the goods. Unfortunately, never because of the kind of world we live in. Once you have a factory like that, you have to spend money on protection. But it's completely secondary. The positive positive mitzvahs in the Torah are what we're here for. The negative are only the the insurance that we don't break down. Yes, they're the connectedness of the world. They're the framework. It's for this reason, incidentally, people who have a little background in learning will will, will understand. We have an amazing principle in, in Jewish law, in halacha, which states that what happens in the unusual circumstances, amazing thing, what happens in those unusual circumstances where you have to fulfill a negative and positive commandment at the same time? Imagine you had to do something that had one and the same act, not as a means to a second act. Yes, I'm without going to the technicalities. But in, in one act, imagine the one act that would be a positive and negative command at the same time. I, imagine you could find such an example. Common sense would tell you, should you do it or not do it? You have the opportunity to fulfill a positive message, but you're going to damage the world. Common sense surely would say you should not do that. And there's law in the Torah that's called an essay <laughs> de In those unusual circumstances, where you can fulfil in one action a positive command and a negative, you're obliged to do it, and the negative fades out of existence. Isn't that an amazing thing. Example. Classic example is tzitzis. You know, when you put tzitzis on a garment, so you may not. You have to wear it. You have to attach tzitzis to a garment. However, you may not attach wool to linen. There's a prohibition in the Torah. One of the negative commandments of shutness, right? You may not sew or stitch or weave together wool and linen. A flax, which is from the plant world, and wool from the animal world, deep, deep idea, you may not attach them together. Let's say you have a garment of wool, and you have titsis of flax. Now, as you perform the mitzvah of tying the titsis to your garment, you will be fulfilling the positive mitzvah of tzitzis, and you'll be transgressing the negative commandment, right, of wearing shatness, right? Let's not get into technicalities, whether you fulfill the mitzvah when you tie it on, or when you wear it according to the opinions that you fulfill the mitzvah when you attach it to your garment. Can you see what you're doing? In one and the same action, you're transgressing the commandment against chatness, and you're fulfilling the commandment of doing tesis, right? In such an example, you fulfill the mitzvah. What happens to the negativity of the transgression? It completely dissolves at that time. There are certain leprous affectations of the body. The body can have a certain part of the body that can be affected by certain... What it is today, we don't have it today, but could be. What happens when the child needs a bris, without circumcision, but the part that will be excised is the part that contains yeah, one of these, the, the skin there is affected. You may not cut those parts of the body off, it's a negative commandment. But you have to cut here because a bris is required. In the same action of performing the bris, you will be transgressing the negative command, yes, of, you do it. What's the understanding of this? Bear in mind, bear in mind that the punishment for negative commands is much more severe than the punishment for desisting from positive commands. Can you see that? Breaking in somewhere and stealing or killing, murdering, the punishments for those things in the spiritual world are much more acute and intense than for the lack of fulfilling a positive command. You did not need matzal basal. That's not good. Right? You did not fulfill a positive command. It's not good. It's a serious omission. But it's not nearly as serious as, as, a ne- as transgressing a negative command. And yet when the two come together, the positive outweighs the negative. What's the spiritual reason? The special reason is that at the moment when you're building the world, you don't need protection. You only need protection. Is this clear? At the moment, yeah, if, if a factory is in full production, at, you don't need a protection. You don't need a protection when the goal has been achieved. When the goal is, by definition, in achievement now, if it's, in, if it's an instantaneous thing. So then, if it's being achieved by definition, no protection necessary at that moment. The positive command completely dominates. Then the question becomes... Why is the punishment for negative commands worse than for positive? If the positive are the ones that build the world, and the negative commandments are the ones that only have protection, why is the punishment for breaking negative commands worse than for lack of fulfillment, fulfillment of positive? Can you see the question? But the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious. The lack of fulfillment of a positive command means you haven't built something. It's serious. But you haven't built. But transgressing a negative command means you've smashed the world. I see we need an analogy. You are in this marital situation, right? And it's your habit to bring flowers on Friday, right? Like every good husband should do. So, it's important. Bring flowers. One Friday, you don't bring flowers. What have you done? You've omitted an act that would have built the love. Is it good? It's not good. Is it serious? It's very serious. (coughs) (laughs) But, but But can it be compared to an act of disloyalty? Are you with me? Although you're not here to prevent yourself from disloyalty, you're here to build the love, but omission of a component of building the love is not nearly a Don't you bring them tomorrow. Not the Shabbos. you bring two, double next week. I more expensive. <laughs> but an act of disloyalty is a breaking down of that which has been built. That is far more serious. Is this, is this clear? Okay. Let's go back to our situation. These people in Steyn had two areas of fault. They didn't give charity, which is a positive commandment. They lacked that. They didn't do that. But they acted with the most tremendous transgression of negative commands. They broke them in the most hideous and brutal fashion. Which is more serious? Transgression of negative commands. By far. What does the prophet point out as their error and the reason they were destroyed? They didn't fulfill a positive command. Isn't that strange? Are we... Are we yes? Again, if you don't share the question, you're not going to enjoy the answer. Are we together? That's our first question with some background. Let's look at the second question. Not necessarily in order, just a few questions that we can pick out that illustrate, hopefully illustrate our point. Different area. The Gemara says that when your life is over, you transition from this situation to another one. A lot of details. I think we're just scheduled to talk about that next Thursday night, if I remember correctly this world, the next, and the transition between them and so forth. But many things happen when you get to that side of the divide. One of them, says the Gemara, <coughs> is that <coughs> marvelous description of what that process is like and, and what many, many issues that are that mentioned and raised there. But one of them is yeah. that three beings come to greet you. Three Malachim. Uh, the English word angels is a hopeless translation, but three Malachim. Right? For want of anything better, we'll say angels. These three creatures, beings, come to, come to greet you. And the Gemara says the reason they are three is because each one has a separate function. You know, it's taught in the Gemara in all the commentaries, that every angel, every malach can only serve one function at a time. You know, malach is, in Hebrew, angel means nothing. The word malach means shlichos, it means being sent to do a task. And because an angel is an emanation that is, that is the, 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 the medium, if you like, that achieves an end point, he can only be one thing at a time. Every malach has only one shlechus at a time. So three angels are sent. These three malachim come to greet you and each of them has a separate function. The first comes to add up all your mitzvahs. comes to add up all your mitzvahs. The second comes to add up all your avaris, all the things you did wrong. And the third one comes to see, the way it's put is, Where is your Torah? And is it complete in your hand? What does it mean? It means that You're put here to achieve a certain amount of expression of Torah. If you're a man, it's primarily in your Torah learning. If you're a woman, it's primarily in the difference you make to the world. That means bringing Torah into effect, into practice, particularly in the area of kindliness, bringing and nurturing results in the world, bringing, bringing energy into practical expression. A man's role, the male role, is more living in the world of producing that energy, and a woman's role is more in the world of bringing it into expression in the world, making it real, giving it life. Just like a child is formed, a man produces only the beginning of the process, and it's the woman who brings it into, into fulfillment and into life in the world, completely opposite mode. But whichever it is, you have Torah to express in the world. And the purpose of being here, you have to express your particular Kedek in Torah. No two people are the same. Each of us is a different letter in the Sefer Torah, right? Without each letter, the whole thing's incomplete. And each of us is put here to achieve that unique, absolutely unique part of that cosmic tapestry, which is what the Jewish people and ultimately the whole world is supposed to be. So this malach, this angel comes to see, hey, where is the Torah that you were meant to bring to the world? And is it complete in your hand? Have you brought it home? The God Vilna says an amazing thing here. Amazing thing. He says that, you know, this, the Gemara says that when you're a child, when you're a, an unborn child in, the, in your mother's womb, an angel is teaching you the whole Torah. There's a malach that is deputized. He's appointed, he teaches you the whole Torah. He spends nine months of, of gestation with, together with the fetus, there the Gemara says there's a light lit above his head and he sees from one end of the world to the other, and the commentaries explain it means that the Malach teaches him his own Khelek in Torah. Every child before he's born knows the totality of the spiritual wisdom. He knows everything about the world. He knows exactly what his role is. He sees every detail of the higher and the lower worlds that he needs for He knows everything there is to know about the world and exactly what he has to build. And then as he's born, the Malach says, says he strikes him on the mouth and the child forgets everything that he knew and is born a helpless child who does not know that information anymore. Actually the deep sources explain he certainly does know it. There's no point teaching him to make him forget it. That doesn't have any purpose at all. What happens is it's driven deep into the unconscious, that's what happens. And you're born with a deep sense of knowledge and certainty of who you are and what you have to do. The question is only how to how to draw out of that well of your, your deep unconscious that deep knowledge. No, that's that's what it is. In fact it's a long subject but the reason you know that things are true, how do you know that something's true when you hear something true? How do you know when you hear something that rings true, that it rings true? How do you know that? In fact, if you're sensitive, if you have any sensitivity in this area, you'll know that when you hear something spiritually true and important, you do not have the sensation of learning something, you have the sensation of recognizing something that you actually knew already. That's exactly what's happening. In fact, the only reason that you know it's true is because you recognize it as as, as resonating with that inner knowledge, which is, which is the essence of who you are. Otherwise, nothing w- would affect you. Everything would go in neutral. Something strike a chord. The reason is they definitely, they certainly strike a chord. They strike a chord with that which was within. That's where you draw inspiration from. Is, is that as you, as you move towards an expression of who you are in depth, that, 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 that inspiration comes out. Nothing neutral about it. As soon as you come close to your tachlis in life. By the way, one of the main causes of depression is moving along pathways that are not connected to your, to your particular role, to your particular tachlis. It's a guaranteed form of cause of depression. Moving along a road that is not where your production Someone else's road cannot be depressed when you're moving on your road. You can be in pain, you can be weeping with with agony, but you can't be depressed. That, That depression means that hopeless, despairing, impossible progress situation, that never, never. You can be in pain, you can be in tears, you can be sad, but not depressed. So that's what happens. The child, this Malach teaches you the whole Torah, and then when you're born you forget it all. And the rest of your life is to build and rebuild that Torah which lies deep within the well of the personality and to bring it out. That's what it is. Says the God, an amazing idea. And it's so obvious when you hear it. It's so obvious. It's so beautiful. The God says when you die and you leave this place and those three angels come towards you, the first one comes to add up all your mitzvahs. The second comes to add up all your havaris. And the third one who comes to see where the Torah is that you were meant to produce in the world, you recognize His face. He is the one who taught you Torah when you were unborn, And he's come to see if you've done it. He shared with you nine months of this Chabrus, he taught you everything about the Torah and everything about the world. And he's anxiously been waiting for the years that you've been done. He's waiting to see what... And you come back, he looks, he he searches you out, he wants to know if all that he inspired you with, and all that he put into you, that you spent your lifetime bringing it out. That's what he's there for. (coughs) Now that's all wonderful and has many other applications and many questions. For homework, if you like. For homework, you can try and figure out why is the blow on the mouth? When you wish to make someone forget something, you strike them on the head, not the mouth. Wonderful question. But let's extract one thing from this discussion for this evening. Stay with me. You'll make my night if you, if you figure it out for yourselves. There are three malachim coming to greet you. One comes to add up all your positive actions, all your misses. One comes to add up all your negative actions. There's nothing left out. The third one comes to see what you produced. What's the question? Can you feel that there's a question here? I can see it's all going through your mind, so I'll just speak it out for you. (laughs) The obvious question here is, if you count up all my positive actions and all my negative, what else is there? Surely that's the totality of what I am. There's nothing neutral. In Jewish life, there's nothing neutral. There's nothing neutral. Sleeping for an hour is not neutral. Sleeping for an hour is not neutral. If you need it, it's a mitzvah. Because it generates energy to produce what you have to produce afterwards. And if you don't need it, it's suicide. Sleeping for an hour that you don't need, you're wasting an hour of life. You know, a dying man would give for one dying person for one more hour. Anything. And you wasted it. You became unconscious. Unforgivable. A week's vacation. A week's vacation. If you needed to recharge to get back into what you should be producing, so it has Kedusha, tremendous sanctity. But if you don't need it, and it's just a week doing nothing, time out, that's suicide spiritually. There's nothing that's neutral. So if this one comes to add up all positive actions, and the other one adds up all negative actions, isn't that the sum total of who you are? What's the third one looking for? Do you see the question? What's left? If every action you did is either positive or negative, and they've just totted those up, so, what's the third one coming to look for? The, your production and what you achieve. What do you mean what you achieve? You did all positive and you did negative, and the sun taught me who you are. What's the third thing? It's a wonderful question. Let's take another
1: question.
0: Yeah, one principle answers all of these. Let's take another question. You know, it says that. Two more questions, yes? Two more questions. <laughs> it says that, you know Hillel, the great sage Hillel in the times of the, of the Mishnah? So Hillel once to, couldn't afford the few pennies that it cost to enter the base madras, right? In the study hall in those days, they had a custom you paid a few pennies to go in. He was so poor, he spent half his day trying to earn the few pennies. The other half day he spent learning, became one of the greatest sages of all time. Hillel once lacked the few pennies that it took to gain admission to the base madras. He climbed in winter onto the skylight. And he put his ear to the skylight to hear the great words of Shema and Aftalion, the two great converts to Judaism who were the leaders of Torah in that generation, who were the Rebbeim, the the teachers of Hillel and Shammai. He put his ear to to hear the words of his great teachers, and in the morning they saw the Basmerish was dark, and they looked up and saw the silhouette of a man on the roof, almost frozen to death, in the snow. They went and brought him in, and they thought him out, and they saved his life. The question here is, why did he risk his life to learn Torah? You're exempt when you're in danger. You're exempt. You don't have to do that. You probably shouldn't. You're probably forbidden. Why did he risk his life to learn Torah? He couldn't get in. It. it was a genuine excuse. If you, The Torah exempts you in those situations. If you're too ill to learn, or you're too... For many reasons you, you can't afford. You have to support your family, for example. So you have to take out the hours that are necessary to support your family. The Rambam says you have to be a working man. The Rambam says, the Rambam says a working man has to work. He has to learn eight hours of Torah a day and work for three. That's what the Rambam says a working man should be doing. Yeah, that's a proportion. That's a working man. That's not a person who's in learning. (laughs) Three hours a day is enough. Your living doesn't come through your own cleverness. The living you earn comes from a different place. So what's the difference how much effort you put in? What's the difference? You're gonna get the same thing anyway. It's predetermined at Rosh Hashanah. You're slaving away more and more and more. What's the point of that? You might as well be learning Torah and it doesn't matter.
1: It's
0: a decree at Rosh Hashanah. You're working harder? It's like trying to pay more tax. (laughs) Anyway, that's a subject for another time. The point is, the point is that, the point is that if you're exempt, you're exempt. If you have to spend the hours that you have to spend, you're exempt. So he was exempt. So why did he risk his life for learning Torah? And a deeper version of this question, which is the final one that we'll deal with, this evening is this. Frightening thing, terrifying thing. Uh, this evening, uh, the heavy time, right? We have to look at these, these heavy things. The Quran says that when you die, you get asked certain questions. You get asked certain questions. <clears throat> you get asked if you fixed time for Torah learning. You get asked if you dealt honestly in business and financial dealings. Certain things you get asked first and foremost. One of the things it says you get asked there is why you didn't learn more Torah. And if you're a woman, learn and express. Right? A special depth in, in Torah learning for a woman, by the way, is her husband's learning. But the Gemara says that she gains, she gains 100% of his learning. Not 50-50. She gains 100% if she's the cause. No, no, she's not the cause. She's the cause of his learning. Right? That means she waits for him. She sends him. She pushes him out of bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. To God learn. So they share the product. They share the product that he's learning, apart from what he achieves on own. So they ask you why you didn't learn more Torah. So the one says like this: Listen to this frightening thing. One says, "What will you answer? You come up to the next world, right? What did you spend your time doing here? Spend your time? What did you spend your time doing? You spend hours in the gym every day trying to achieve the looks of a gorilla. That's what you
1: do." <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I don't know.
0: Whatever you did. So they're gonna ask you <coughs> Not you. You're sitting listening to a sheer. Right? You're
1: friends. Your friends. One
0: of the questions you'll be asked is So why didn't you learn Tara? What are you gonna answer? It's a world of truth. You can't say things that are dishonest. It's the world of truth by definition. You are incapable you, you are a you have no free will there. You're not you cannot you cannot be deceptive, you can't say it's the world of truth and you have no free will left. All you are is an expression. All you can say there is an expression of what you are. That's all. So what will you say? So it like this. You'll say I was too poor. I was too poor. They say, why didn't you learn more Torah? You say, Hashem, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You gave me a very difficult situation. You made me scramble and, and hustle to earn a living. I had a, you kept me busy. I had to go do that. How can you ask me why I didn't learn more Torah when you made it necessary? You have to make a status. How much time is another question? but you have to go out there and make an effort? And there are certain principles about how many hours you should spend. So I spent my time doing that because that was the situation you gave me. That's what it says. That's what it says in the rule book. The Shulkan says that. It's permitted. But they won't accept it. You know that? It says your answer will not be accepted. You know why? Because it says they'll come right back to you and say, were you poorer than Hillel? Hillel was so poor, you certainly weren't as poor as he was. He couldn't afford the few pennies that it took to get in and learn Torah. And he went and lay on the skylight and risked his life. So what's your excuse? By the way, the Gamon says that if you try any other tricks, for example, if you say I was too rich. <laughs> <laughs> let's say you say I'm too rich. You know that it's a big mitzvah to take care of your wealth. You know that the Gamon says about a, pert- a particular rich sage. Gamon says that he considered himself only half the man his father was because he used to check all his possessions and financial situation once a day and his father used to check twice a day. So you see that from taking care with his possessions, which is divine trusteeship that you've been given, that's considered a mitzvah. So if you say to Hashem, look, I was, you gave me a lot of wealth. Had you made me poor, I would have learnt a lot. But you made me wealthy, I would take care of all my... Which is true. It's 100% true. You cannot be deceptive. If you're a rich man, you have to take care of your possessions. You have to do it responsibly. You have to use your wealth responsibly. So they'll say to you, that's not good enough. they say, were well, you richer than Rabbi Lassab bin ben Khasim? He was an unbelievably rich sage in the time of the Mishnah. The, the one says he was so rich... He owned he owned cities, he owned fleets and he owned cities. But he never paid attention to his wealth. He delegated all the management of his wealth. And he wandered the roads from one yeshiva in, in in this part of the Middle East to another in order to learn Torah. That's such an idea that after you acquire a method of learning from one particular teacher, then you should begin you should test it out against other methods of learning until you build your own unique style and your own unique depth. So after he'd imbibed enough of his own basic learning, he used to wander from one yeshiva to another with a small bundle. And he used to cook out a small, some, some, some flour and dough, and then he used to move on to the next place until he would have become a very, very great sage. There was this, once he was moving across property that w- was his own, and the person in charge, whoever was the, the uh, caretaker of his property, arrested him for trespassing on this property because he didn't know he was his employer. He had nothing to do with him. He delegated the work, and he, worked, well, know, he got arrested by one of his own superintendents. So they say to you in Shemaim, what do you mean you to look after your property? Were you richer than he was? He was far wealthier than you, and he spent, no th- he spent time learning Torah. And we'll go on and on, the Gemara says, if you say, well, I wasn't rich and I wasn't poor, but I had a very powerful yetzahora. <laughs> you gave me a very powerful yetzahora. Yes, you gave me tremendous lust and drive, you know. They'll say, you gave that to me, right? You gave me a tremendous animal within to deal with. They'll say that you have a more powerful drive than Yeseba Tzaddik, Joseph, who was with Potiphar's wife for a whole year when he was 17, and he coped with it. There's no way out of this. No way out. Now, the question we have to ask is, the question we have to ask is like this, is that fair? Is that fair? Is that fair? Again, what's going on here? You get up to that world, and they say to you, why did you not achieve more? Why didn't you learn more Torah in the world? So you say, oh, "I was very poor, I'd earn a living. Now, you're quoting something that the rules state: The of the code of Jewish law, right? The Torah explicitly, it's absolutely clear in all Jewish halachic sources, that if you have to spend time earning a living, you have to put in the effort. So you're quoting what the rules state. And they don't accept it? Imagine getting up in a court of law and being charged and sentenced for something that the law allows. <coughs> Does not make any sense? You're not, you're, not, you're not saying that which is nonsense. You get up there and you quote exactly what the rules, you quote his Torah. Hashem, in your Torah you wrote that if I'm destitute I have to make an, a, an effort, I have to make an effort. So I went out to make an effort. You don't accept that? What's going on? Is the question clear? But let's try and answer the question. Let's try and answer all of these questions. This principle, again, that nothing could be more basic, and nothing could be more self-evident, and if you haven't thought this way, you should feel, we should feel ashamed. But it's surprising how the Ramchal says that the most obvious things are the most easily overlooked. And the secret is this. There are two kinds of obligations in the Torah. they are two completely separate sets. Completely separate things. There's the world of mitzvahs and of of obligations and transgressions, and there's another set entirely, and that is, who are you? Analogy. Here's a man who wants a load of goods delivered someplace. Right? I don't know how you do it in this country. Probably you hire a truck driver. No, you want some goods delivered to Glasgow. So you hire a big truck, and you hire a fellow, and you say to him, look, I want you to deliver, yeah? The boss says, I want you to deliver this load of goods to a certain address in, in Scotland. You take the truck, and I want you to do it meticulously. I want you to not cross the white line, no traffic tickets, check the oil, check the tyres, don't get the truck damaged, do it right. Man says, fine, takes on the job, travels up, three days later he gets back. Boss says to him, how did the job go? He says, boss, absolutely perfect, never cross the white line, check the oil, the truck's in spick, spick and span shape, nothing went wrong, absolutely fine, no traffic tickets, great. He said to him, did you deliver the goods? He says, oh, I forgot.
1: Laughter
0: there's two, there's two categories. There's two things here. There's one question is following the rules of the road. The other thing is, which road are you on? Which road are you on? You're paying such careful attention to the rules, you might have forgotten to check out if you're heading the right way. You might be going north instead of south. You can be a meticulous thorough, observant Jew and be a nobody. You can follow the rules, you can be an ethical and moral, you can observe every mitzvah perfectly and forget who you're supposed to be. The concept of following the mitzvahs and not doing what you shouldn't do and doing what you should be is supposed to be building you. Not just building you as an individual. Building you as a unique individual. Not just that you should come out sensitive and loving and developed. But unique and nobody else is. Where's your unique flavor here? Did you stop to ask yourself where are you going? See, when Hillel lay on the roof, he knew he was exempt. He knew he was exempt. He had no problem with that. He knew he was exempt. He knew that if he got up to the next world and they said to him, why didn't you learn Torah? So he'd say, look, I was exempt. I didn't learn. So they say, if that's fine, you're exempt. But who are you? Who are you? You know, if you run a business and you earn money every day and you don't feel well one day and the next day you feel a bit low so you stay home again and the next day you have your aunt's wedding so you go to that, etc., etc., etc. Have you got a good excuse why you weren't at work? Absolutely. Did you earn any money? Zero. Zero. You're not feeling well. You take a study course. Is the message clear? Are we together? You take a study course. You have to be there every day to hear the lectures and undergo the... So what happens? The first day you don't feel well. The next day you feel weak. Etc, etc. So you don't attend the course. They ask you why you weren't there. Have you got an excuse? Absolutely. You weren't well. You couldn't be there. That's fine. Do you know anything? (laughs) There are two questions here. One is, are you following the rules? If you're exempt, you're exempt. If you're not exempt, you're not. But the second question is, Hill knew that although he would be able to turn in an excuse of being exempt, he would be no one. He was given one chance in life to become Hill. He had two things in his head. One was observing the rules. But the more important thing was becoming who he was supposed to be. So the day when he was exempt, he knew he wasn't required to be there, but he, he couldn't afford a day not becoming who he was supposed to be. It's a completely different thing, more severe judgment. You know who that third angel is? Can you see now what he means? The three angels come, isn't it obvious? The first one comes to look at all your actions positive. You followed the rules. The second one comes to see your negative actions. You broke the rules. Then there's another question entirely. Those two step aside. And the third one comes to see who are you. A disconnected question. You could have done the rules right and be a no one. Mitzvahs in Torah have to be done with intention. It means you have to build yourself. You have to do mitzvahs for the next world. You have to do them to grow spiritually. You have to invest. You only have uh, rewards where you invest. The Rav says one mitzvah done for the right reason gains you an entire eternal existence in the next world. Just one. But you have to have one. You don't invest there. There's no there. You get a reward if you do mitzvahs without that intention. But the language is humiliating if you do a mitzvah in this world for no spiritual purpose. That means you do a mitzvah because it belongs here. You eat matzah on Pesach because it's a traditional Jewish thing to do. Did you eat matzah on Pesach? Yes. Did you fulfill a mitzvah that invests something in the spiritual world? No. Will you get spiritual reward when all your effort was physical? If you fulfill all the mitzvahs in the Torah to make the world a better place, tremendous ideal, your family and you and the world should be a better place. You get any reward in the spiritual world? No. What's your reward? The world is a better place. You're a better person. That's fine. That's what you wanted. That's where you invested. That's what you get. Do you have eternal cosmic existence? No. To get that, you have to invest it there. Salam Chal says you get some of it. You know why? Because the Torah's mitzvahs, says, Hashem would never withhold the reward of a creature the <coughs> language is Hashem does not deny or what do you say does not withhold the reward of any creature therefore even if you do a mitzvah for the wrong reason you get a spiritual reward Mitzvahs have cosmic value the currency cannot be paid out in this world there is no reward for a mitzvah in this world because its currency could not fit into this world it is beyond all measure in this world and therefore, if you do a mitzvah here, yeah, even with the wrong intention, you get reward there. But you know what the language is? You know where this language comes from? Enamek, Apeh, berry, which the Ramchal uses? It's the same language that the Torah uses when it says that you have a carcass that's not kosher, you should throw it to the dogs. The reason is that the dogs didn't bark when you left Egypt. And the reward is the Torah says you throw them the unkosher meat. The same words that the Torah uses for throwing a carcass to a dog who has no free will, because he deserves a reward, the same words that Ramchal uses for your reward when you do a mitzvah without thinking about any deeper. It's a reward, but it's humiliate. It's humiliate. And that's the answer to the questions. That's the answer to the questions. Of course you have an excuse when you get up there and you say I was too poor. Of course you have an excuse. Of course they know that. That's in the rules. And they're not going to hold you accountable for that. You did what the rules said, they closed the book. But then they look at who you are. But that's the work you're supposed to be. What kind of project? is you lose the project? Anybody who runs a business. Anyone runs a business, they have board meetings, you know? They have board meetings monthly, I don't know, every two months, every week. They, meet, they sit around a board table, don't they? And they check their goals. They set goals, they look at graphs, I don't know what they do, I'm not a business, but I'm sure, I'm sure they have goals and they check whether they're meeting those goals, don't they? Huh? What kind of person runs a business that sort of blondes on from day to day? You don't do that. No sportsman just sort of does it without goals. Anything that's important to you in life, you set a goal and you measure your performance. But when it comes to you, or your marriage, or where your children are holding, what's becoming of you and your family, what you'll end up with one day. Think about that, you son.
1: <laughs> Make any
0: sense? There's nothing more important, that no more important project than who you are, who you are as a family, needs assessment. Shabbos is the ideal time. Husband and wife have to sit down on Shabbos. After. I to analyze carefully where they're holding, what the children, what this family looks like. Parent has to look at a child, especially a mother. Mother's a special talent for knowing where each child is holding. Men are hopeless at that. <laughs> what is the goal here? Is the char- what, 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 what is needed? What happened with Stone? What happened with the people of Stone? Can you see why they were wiped out? Can you see the meaning of this? The people of Stone were wiped out because they didn't give charity. You know why that was the reason for their destruction? Because if you're behaving negatively, it doesn't mean you get destroyed. You're breaking the rules, you're behaving negatively. You're not so for that. But to get wiped out and disappear off the face of the earth? Not necessarily. But when the world has nothing for, from you, when there's no output, when there's no production at all, so then what are you here for? I see another analogy is needed. Again, e- analogy. Emotion. Let me show you that breaking the rules is not as bad in one dimension as lack of production. Example, you hire a maid. You hire a maid. Lady arrives 8 o'clock in the morning and she does the work in the house and the work is done very well. And day after day she works in your home and the house is. A few days later you notice some things are missing. Some things are missing. Some cash is missing and some clothing is missing. It happens. It happens. What do you do? Depends. You fire the lady. Not necessarily. It depends. Maybe you, maybe you confront her. Maybe you're more careful with your things. Maybe you don't tend her by leaving valuables lying around. There's a number of ways to handle the situation. Scenario number two. You hire a lady. She arrives at 8 o'clock in the morning. She sits on a chair in the living room. It doesn't move until 5.
1: <laughs>
0: 5 o'clock she gets up and says goodbye and she walks out. She didn't take anything.
1: She didn't steal anything.
0: And after a few days, every day she arrives exactly on time. She's never late. She sits at 8 o'clock on the chair, 5 o'clock in the afternoon she leaves, never, never cuts short, and she never takes a thing. What do you do with that, maid? Fire her. You know why? She's not causing you any harm, but she's not doing the job. When the society of stone is a society that's a closed loop, can you see the logic here? When the world has nothing from them. Sure, they were brutal. They were brutal, they pay for that. But Hashem can tolerate people who are brutal. You'll make them pay. But if the world has something from them, if there's some production here, there's some achievement, the world's changing because these people are here. So they'll have to answer for what they're doing, but at least they're serving a purpose. But when nothing comes from them, they don't give anything to anybody else. They're totally insulated and isolated. no production here. They get destroyed immediately. From that perspective, it's work. Can you see this? And therefore, the message is, the message is, in this difficult time of year, Normally, we try not to speak about these things, we try to speak about more purely spiritual ideas, maybe. But this is the time to focus inwardly. There's a necessary element of self-analysis that is exactly who am I now and where am I going. You know, there's a thing in Jewish life called cheshbon and Nefesh. Nefesh. means that you sit on your bed at night, sit on your bed, just before you go to sleep, and you say to yourself, how am I different now than I was this time 24 hours ago? And I sat on my bed at this time yesterday, Where am I different now than I was then? If you cannot show where, you're in desperate trouble. Desperate trouble, the day has gone by and it has not been used. That's a desperate pain. If you can't afford the feeling of that every day, once a week at least. The sun goes down on Friday, take a walk by yourself. Shabbos comes in, ask yourself, Am I different now? It's a week older, won't come again. And the older you get, the faster they go. There's no production. You should take stock. You should sit there and ask yourself, where am I different than I was a year ago? If you've come through a year where you've made mistakes and things have been chipped away and suffered, so but on the other hand, there's something being achieved. You're more sensitive. You have more understanding. You have built yourself in certain ways. You've got something to show for it. If you were taken away tomorrow, what, who would you be? Would you regret not having used? But you can only do the Cheshwam Nebuchadnezzar. You have to sit down and figure out where you you have to not wallow in guilt and desperation. You have to reward yourself richly for what you achieve. And you have to take on serious direction for what you haven't done. If you can't handle it daily, you have to do it weekly or monthly, sometime. Maybe for a lady. When it comes to children and family, it's a woman's primary responsibility. She's the one who has the sense to it. And therefore, in these three weeks, perhaps, without trying to moralize too much and be too, you know, negative, <coughs> the very first thing that needs to be done in, in terms of personal growth is, where am I, and where am I going? Long before you start taking on this mitzvah and that mitzvah and this detail, you'll improve this, you'll improve that. That's all fine. But surely if it doesn't fit into a program, you need to have goals. A young man gets into learning, for example. An older man gets into learning. Any age. You have to have a goal. You have to know that in six months' time you need to be self-sufficient. You want to learn Torah? It's not a spectator sport. You have to do it yourself. The whole idea of Torah is to change your inner being. So it's not a spectator thing. You come along to lectures where you hear a lecture and another lecture, and as being a spectator, that's not Torah. You have to become self-sufficient. You need the time. You have to carve out the time. Go to Israel, go to a couple of weeks, someplace, in the summer, take off a week, a month, whatever you can, an hour a day, an hour a week, something. But not just listening to interesting material. You have to develop the skills to do it yourself. You have to have a goal. Six months time, I learn a text by myself. I don't speak Hebrew, so make that a goal. The first six months, you learn to speak Hebrew. You to read, to translate. The Jewish people never spoke Hebrew as a primary language. We never it was rejected That. Always grew up in countries where we spoke other languages. Even in, even, even in the Second Temple times in Israel, we deliberately chose not to speak Hebrew as a spoken language. You always had to learn it but you have a much deeper appreciation for what it means spiritually if you learn it late and therefore and therefore perhaps <coughs> what we as a group need to do we have tremendous opportunities unbelievable opportunities locally for example tremendous uh, talented people who are making themselves dedicating themselves to being available to learn with people its programs in this place almost daily, nightly, so you can learn one-on-one with somebody, ask your questions, you can come to small groups and ask questions, you can learn text, there's just no limit there, no excuse. And so, <clears throat> although it's not my task to presume to tell you what to do, but this is a time when perhaps we need to, you know, make a beginning of an assessment about where it is that we are as a people, we're not in good shape as a people. Not at all in good shape, and the result of course is that the world is in <coughs> tremendously painful, bitter <coughs> mode Just close your eyes to that and keep going is inhuman and it all stems from where I'm holding as an individual, a question of accusing other people and therefore this is the time to make that first resolution perhaps so that when you finally transition through that passageway and you come face to face with that face, that is familiar, that angelic being who was your first contact with your own sense of destiny that you'll be able to stand up and be able to show what you